this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. So, Holly, how are you today? I'm doing really well. I just um, had an invigorating conversation, which gives me a lot of things to think about. Mm-hmm. Now, how about yourself? Uh, I'm doing like everybody else in America who is working and that is working uh, from home over Zoom and talking to people who are working from home over Zoom Mm -hmm. and attending staff meetings, everybody from a different location, all 20 plus of us who attended that meeting this morning. I had a, a, I want to let you know a couple of things. I had a really good invigorating conversation with Jackie Lewis this morning. Yeah. Who is coming to Houston in October. And um, she is going to replicate at least the way it is right now, her program on anti-racism called Answering the Call. And so she will be here in October and um, we'll present four times on Saturday and once on Sunday. She said that she would bring some of her music with her, mm-hmm. which is going to be exciting. Yeah. And uh, she said that what she would like to do is to make a, a presentation on Saturday morning, have a break followed by a, an invigorating exchange of ideas. She said. That sounds great. And then do the same thing on Saturday afternoon and then come back and maybe on Sunday, uh, and we'll, we'll work this out as we go along, maybe on Sunday, what she could do, um, we could collect some additional questions and things and you and I could just have a uh, conversation with her on Sunday morning. But we'll, we'll work that out. Yeah. I also, I also sent an email today to Michael Morewood. Oh, good. Um, he might still be sleeping. <laughs> he is sleeping, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I'll, I will hear back from him sometime probably tonight. Yeah. Um, because it will then be in the morning where right. he is. Right. We're going to have Michael Morewood, and I have, as you know, because you're on it, put together a group that I'm calling the webinar team. And we're going to begin doing webinars. I think that can go pretty seamlessly. We've got I some. think so. And one of the things that John Watson, who is on the webinar team, said that um, doing webinars actually will allow us to have a larger number of people Absolutely. Um, that we can offer to people who attend Ordinary Life and others free of charge to uh, hear these great minds great voices speak yeah and and you know i was really 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 reluctant to um go down this particular path Mm -hmm. because i kept thinking that any moment now we're going to be able to regather but when i talked to jackie and asked her what they're doing at middle collegiate church Mm -hmm. in manhattan and if anybody wants to they can just go on the website uh, just make sure uh, middlechurch.org 
yeah. to see what Jackie uh, Lewis is doing. Uh, I, when I talked to her, I asked her when she thought the church would gather again for worship, and she said, not until next year. Mm. So they've made that decision. They have made a decision to follow the queue of the Broadway Theater District. Yeah. You know, I think that, you know, speaking of what we just chatted about, speaking of grief about times like this, and uh, someone sent us the, the podcast from On Being about ambiguous grief, and this time is like ambiguous grief. We can point to the things that we've lost, but they're sort of still out there in the ether, but we just can't engage with them in the same way. But um, this part of what contributes to the grief, I think, is not having a plan, you know, not knowing when. This idea that, well, maybe next month we'll gather together, as opposed to just saying, we're not even going to think about gathering together until January of next year. We're going to proceed as follows and we'll revisit in January. You know, I think in times like this, knowing something helps people. So I think that's wise of Middle Church to say, we're following this plan and we're going to do it accordingly. Well, before moving on and responding to that, I just want to say that when I first encountered Jackie Lewis Mm. at the Roar Conference last year, I was smitten with her. She's a beautiful person in every way. You've fallen in love with two people at Roar Conferences. (laughs) Yeah, I have. (laughs) And um, actually more than that, because I'm also in love with Jim Finley. Yes. Yeah, Um, he's pretty awesome. But when I had the encounter with her today, she's just so gracious and warm and open and just right there. And she's writing a book. Oh, really? Great. Yeah. It's going to be called Now. Uh It will be released next Juneteenth. Perfect. Isn't that perfect? Yeah. Anyway. um, So I had this experience last night. We had, Sherry and I had this experience last night. I had asked Tim Leatherwood, mm-hmm. who does over-the-top duty yeah. in making it possible for ordinary life to get out to the number of people that it does, and all the work that he does at, at St. Paul's. I'd ask him to make me a DVD of a worship, a particular worship service from mm-hmm. St. Paul's. And mm-hmm. last night we watched. I will have to tell you that it was a hard thing to do because it reminded me how much I miss gathering like that and participating with that community of people in that ritual. I've been attending Mm. St. Paul's Mm. for 30 years. Me too, actually. That's funny since I was 14. And it just is so hard not to do that and to be present with those people and to hug people. That's what you miss is hugging people. Yes, I know. And, uh, just to share in the various life changes that people go through and to have that familiarity. And I think not knowing when it's going to return is really, is really a tough thing. Yeah, but I think about my 
kids and how kids so look to the adults to mirror how they need to feel about situations often. And, you know, they're, they're doing, they're, they're being heroic about all of the sort of little things that have been disrupted in their life. Just even, you know, most parks are closed and have yellow caution tape wrapped around them and not being able to just, Hey, let's go ride our bikes to get ice cream, which we do frequently and then go to the park for a Mm -hmm. bit. Little disruptions in their life are gone. I mean, they're, they're more or less, it's not that we couldn't go get ice cream. We could put on masks and go, but there's a certain fluidity, a certain spontaneity that's, that's lost. And I think that spontaneity is what, you know, when, that what we're missing, what I know I'm missing is just a little bit of not having to pre-think through every action to know, is this safe? Does this propose a risk? Who am I risking? So for, for me, and this is not at all to try and make myself sound good, but I am, because I'm sitting across from you every week, I'm always thinking Bill and Sherry are my, y'all are my immediate circle right now, right? Because of our engagement at Ordinary Life. And I have heard so many people say, um, oh, how does this impact me? And then how does this impact the network? And then how does this impact the whole? And it's tough for kids to think beyond how does this impact me? But I have to say I'm impressed with my kids' resilience right now, with their ability to take an about course and do something different and find ways to entertain themselves. As you know, I like to uh, play with titles for the ta- for our yeah. times together. Yeah. And uh, next week, I decided that we're going to call it "Reality is Not What It Used to Be," <laughs> which is kind of a not true thing. It's a dual reality thing. The reality has always been what it is, and it's not a fixed thing, as you well know. It's yeah. evolving all yeah. the time. And as we evolve and our understanding of what reality is evolves. And yeah. Um, yeah. I think culturally, one of the things that's going on is that people are so scared about not knowing, as you say, what's going to happen next. And their reaction to um, being so scared is to be angry yeah. and to be controlling and, um, it shows up in the culture in a lot of really sad ways. Yeah. 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 I think that that, that's that very thin line between uh, fear and anger is very real. I've felt it as a mother, right? Um, I, one time uh, my child saw a jug on the porch. Someone had been cleaning the sides of our house and left a jug on the porch that had a toxic material in it mm-hmm. and it had a pump on it and my child puts the pump in his mouth and starts pumping it oh no yeah <laughs> um he was fine it was very apparently very diluted with water i had to call poison control but the first instinct was fear um that the second instinct that arose almost as quickly was anger don't put don't you do that put it down you know the sort of like very strong, I guess it could also be called a protective use of force, mm-hmm. but the, the two were so close, fear and anger, that it was very hard to distinguish the emotion in that moment. And, 
And I wonder if, if sort of societally where we are tracking with those two emotions side by side right now, fear and anger, fear and anger. So that there's maybe just one emotion called finger. I don't know, <laughs> you know. Well, going back to what I introduced in our time on Sunday, Mm -hmm. um, the therapy called constructive living, which was created or uh, developed by uh, Morita in mm -hmm. Japan, um, is really not guided by how you feel. It's guided by what our values are and what has to be done. Yeah. And um, I decided to continue reading, refreshing my memory about what some of this constructive living therapy is all about. Mm -hmm. And I, I read and remembered uh, that Fritz Perls, the founder of Gestalt Therapy, was a student of Morita's as well. And um, much of the writing that eventually found its way through Fritz Perls in his book on Gestalt Therapy and one other book whose title I'm not recalling right now, are direct quotes from Morita. He even went to Japan, Fritz Perls went to Japan and stayed for a week in the psychiatric hospital where Morita was uh, doing his practice. As a patient or as a... Uh, yeah, so that he could learn more from him. It was, it was a teaching situation for Fritz Perls. Um, huh. Yeah, I mean, you can see where culturally he, the, and I have not read the book, but just from what you said, I imagine that the culture in which he came up, um, which may have been Zen Buddhism, impacted his, his relationship with emotions, right? right. His relationship Absolutely. With, yeah. with how things catch us, so to speak. Yeah. And you can see Marita's influence in uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's work where yes. you notice what your emotions are. You don't yeah. let them rule your life. You notice what your thoughts are. Yeah. And uh, the man that I refer to as my first spiritual teacher, actually my first spiritual teacher was my teddy bear. Yeah. Do you know I still have my teddy bear that I've had since I was eight years old? I still have my teddy oh. bear too. We might yeah. have to each show pictures of our teddy bears on an Ordinary Life slideshow one day. So that's a good point. I'll do that Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> I can do that because yeah. I, I, yeah. I have it. George, the first spiritual teacher that I had, uh, said that, you know, you, you practice noticing your emotions like leaves on the surface of a river as they float by. You notice your thoughts like leaves on the surface of the river as they float by. And the minute we take one is real, we're in trouble. I'm looking at your virtual background right now of an ocean maybe, or a, a, a large lake, but you know, I love that thought yep. of, um, the ocean is not made of individual waves. It's, it's an entire body. And, and I wonder, one of my first mm -hmm. encounters with Thich Nhat Hanh was about being the ocean. Don't be a single wave that crests and falls and crests and falls, but just be the ocean, be the container of each wave, kind of. One of the prayer poems I read by Hafiz this morning is that everything is carried in God's bucket. Otherwise, why would the ocean on the bottom of the earth not fall out of the bucket? <laughs> and he's just got such a wonderful way of 
talking about how that, that allows us to reimagine everything. Yeah. So imagine God singing, there's a hole in my bucket. Dear Liza, dear Liza. <laughs> right. Let's hope there's not a hole in that bucket. <laughs> this, I think that's, that's been a bit of a, maybe a thematic way of thinking for me lately. What, as you know, one of my, or my, really my profession has been in education and classroom education. And now I work with the teachers um, and on a part-time basis, just consulting on kind of social emotional development and how to have restorative classrooms. So classrooms that are very different than the one I described on Sunday, for example, Mm -hmm. that are not punitive based and not shame based, but restorative and community based. And, um, I have likened the role because it has been very hard to be out of the classroom because I loved my relationships with students, with kids, uh, Mm -hmm. seeing them grow and change is becoming a container, right? How to, how to contain, help contain or shape containers with folks. And I think that's one of the things that when, if we're talking about the influence of ordinary life over So out of the 30 years that I have been a member at St. Paul's, 22 of those have been spent with you Mm -hmm. (laughs) in in Fondren Hall and sometimes at the museum. But, you know, I think you've created and helped shape a container that is a really lovely, almost moving body of Mm -hmm. people that is reshaping how we engage with spirituality and the work of spiritual liberation. I talked with one health professional today who said that, um, I mentioned the same thing that we're talking about right now, yeah. uh, about the grief that's involved in yeah. not having what we had and not knowing what we will have. Yes. And he said yeah. that the optimism about a vaccine may be really overrated because perhaps the vaccine that we get about COVID will be much like the flu vaccine that we have now. And you get a flu shot and that does not guarantee that you will not get the flu. My non-medical, I'm not a medical doctor. I don't have that training, but that's been my thought. You know, if it, it, viruses, not necessarily each particular virus, but viruses on the whole change shape. They respond to the environment in which they are grown also. And if our environment, meaning our earth environment, continues to toxify, viruses respond in turn and become, I think, more virulent, right? Stronger. I'm saying that out of a sort of non-clinical observation of what's happened with the flu over the last 15 to 20 years. But I have definitely had that thought that even if we develop a vaccine, it does not necessarily eradicate this because of the nature of of viruses and their relationship to our ecological well-being. And there again, I mean, when I think too hard about that, well, at what point do we sort of develop a routine that doesn't alienate us socially from one another that also feels respectful of our needs, our various needs for space and well-being, but still allows us to engage in a way that feels connective, intimate, and genuine. 
um, that's, that's my grief is like, when can some of that come back? I really, I, you know, as I said on Sunday, I so longed to hug Sherry mm. when I saw her. Um, and I didn't, but, and you and I haven't, as I've said before, haven't even hugged in months. <laughs> and um, our, our very dear friends who are our kids' godparents, um, they came by to say hi over the fence. And normally we are giant huggers, you know? So I keep wondering when is some of that? I catch myself stopping at a certain distance from people mm-hmm. when I go to say hello, or I catch myself crossing my arms and not extending my hand to shake, you know, uh, that's, I think that the impact on our psyches and our behaviors is much greater than we can fully grasp right now. Right. Do you think so? Yeah. And, and, you know, I mentioned to you that, uh, I had, had read, um, Cassidy Dale's book, uh, called the night and the gardener, which is a, really an exploration of two different worldviews. I want to be clear, there are not just two different worldviews. There are many, many different worldviews. But two prominent worldviews are, um, one is the knight, the knight who goes in shining armor to rescue the damsel in distress, or the knight who goes off to war to win the battle and save the day, and Knights have certainly served valuable functions in the history of the world. But the other worldview, the worldview of the gardener, which you evoked in my mind when you said we provide a container Mm -hmm. in which people can grow, in which people, a safe container, which people can look at um, their own growth process and what's going on in the world without being overly reactive Mm -hmm. that's a very a very important thing and that's that's missing right now for a lot of people that container uh is not out there to be found and people are doing all that in in i think i think many people are doing all that they know how to do uh to reach out like through this podcast and um, mm-hmm. through having webinars with Michael Moore Wood and Jackie Lewis and things right. like that. But uh, it's not the same as being able to gather in person in a small group of 12 or 15 or 20 people, or even a large group of 180. And um, right. yeah. feel like there's some energy here that uh, yeah. we appropriate for ourselves when we gather. The, the yeah. People in groups can do more than they can do by themselves. Absolutely. That fallow soil, you know, just being able to produce richness, I think. But the, And then there is, oh, I can't think of that Gospel of Thomas saying, where any two people gather. Jesus said, where any two people are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. So then there's that, right? There's the, the two-ness. Um, also experiences in betweenness, right? Mm-hmm. I, I, I think of three things. One, there is a new organ, but it's not new. It's just maybe newly seen or discovered that is being called the interstitium. It's the stuff between the stuff mm-hmm. that holds everything together, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, right? In cosmology, we would call that dark matter. 
and it is the it is what keeps gravity things that are held together by gravity from flying apart and i think that our mm-hmm. intimacy with one another our connections with other folks also help keep us from mm-hmm. flying apart absolutely and yeah this is you know i, I feel so thankful that i have uh, a best friend and my spouse and someone i also just deeply romantically love and that helps keep me from flying apart. Mm-hmm. But I know I have many friends who are single women mostly, and you know, just trying to manage through this time um, without flying apart. Years ago at the University of Miami Hospital Pediatric Division, an experiment was run. And this was the experiment. Every newborn baby, I think they were prematurely born babies, neonatal unit. And all of these babies got excellent care. They all got excellent care. But every other baby that was born got an additional something that the other babies didn't get. And that was that they got an additional several times a day a nurse or a nurse practitioner put his or her hand into the incubator and stroked the baby for 15 minutes that's all they did now all the babies got held and touched Mm -hmm. and all that Mm -hmm. but these babies got 15 minutes more several times a day than the other group and the babies that got touched Mm -hmm. their weight gain was double what the babies who did not get touch was. And the guy who ran this experiment said, these babies responded to tactile stimulation. And I said, horse feathers. (laughs) These babies responded to loving touch. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and, uh, so we don't have that touch right right now. That's right. Except, you know, if you know that you're with somebody who's not a carrier or infected, then you can have that. But it it is affecting us. It is. In your training, I'm sure you read at some point the experiments of Harry Barlow with the monkeys. Uh And all three baby monkeys were placed with a non-living maternal object. Um, One that was completely stiff and had no softness to it. One that was um, uh, sort of soft and had been softened by cloth and had some kind of mechanism where it could feed. And the third was sort of um, withdrawn. And they also found out that these baby monkeys did much better with the one that they were able to cuddle against. The baby monkeys that grew up without uh, the touch of another grew up to be um, sexually promiscuous or aggressive. They didn't know how to take care of their young. I once read in a book by a professor of mine, he made this sort of analogy to our mm-hmm. emotional voidness that we seem to be a bit, I don't know what the right word is, if it's schizophrenic in, in the non-clinical sense, but we have this kind of relationship sometimes to reality, whatever that is, where we are like children with different kinds of caregivers, right? If we grew up with an uh, insecure caregiver with one who looked at us with hardened eyes and said, I love you, 
that's a very confusing experience for a child, right? And to undo the impact of not knowing what to believe when someone speaks the words, I love you, but your face isn't telling me that. And I think, you know, about kids right now who's somewhat normalized or potentially healthy social experience might be coming through the community of school who don't get to return to school, that they're continuing to watch these, their brains are continuing to be wired in this sort of confusing manner that I love you kind of, I hit you because I love you or, you know, whatever they're, they might be undergoing. Yeah. If, 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 for a child, and I've heard Sherry say this many times, children are, she says, are like vacuum cleaners. Yes. They suck yeah. up everything. They don't miss anything. And, you know, one of the best lessons in the very topic that we're talking about right now that I ever got was when I got my dog. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. As you know, I had this dog that I love very much. His name is Jet. And Jet's a yeah. solid black standard poodle who's yeah. getting older. And um, when I got this dog, I took it because the breeder, uh, part of the by, uh, getting the dog, the breeder required that I had to take the dog to a vet to have the dog checked out by the vet before mm -hmm. she would sell me the dog. And so I took the dog to this vet that um, I found and I liked very much. And uh, the vet examined Jet and said, yes, he's a really healthy, good puppy. And I think you'll have a good future with him. She said, by the way, when's the last time you had a dog? And I said, well, I had dogs when I was a little boy, but I haven't had a dog for years and years. And she said, I would like to suggest that you hire a dog trainer mm -hmm. just to somebody to, get, to help you get off on the right foot with yeah. I, yeah, I did. <laughs> hired this couple that she recommended and the first thing they told me was don't ever punish this dog if the dog does something that you don't like ignore it mm -hmm. but if the dog does something that you do like reward it mm -hmm. and reward it all the time it does something that you like yeah. because dogs cannot distinguish between a negative and a positive thing. Any interaction you have with a dog is an interaction that gives them some information. So if you don't reward them for bad, just ignore it. Mm -hmm. But reward them for good, then they will, you know, respond accordingly. Mm -hmm. So I did that. I did that. Jet's never been hit. He's never been fussed at. And, um, I think we've had very few accidents when he was a puppy in the mm -hmm. house. Mm -hmm. it, and uh, so every time I would take him outside and he would do his business, I would give him a treat. And the, the dog got to the point that he would go outside and pretend. <laughs> he outsmarted <laughs> you. To do his business just so he could get a treat. But I would tell him, no, you're not getting away with that. But yeah. the, the point is that any interaction is reinforcement. Yes. Yeah. And so... Um, again, we're talking about d d dealing with this kind of ambiguous grief. We got to figure out ways to ramp up our positive interactions when we can't be together in person because people need that. Yeah. We need affection and attention and appreciation 
that's just one thing that all human beings need. Yeah, I think it's bringing that up in such a big way right now is how are we showing up for ourselves too? How are we showing affection, care, or love to ourselves? Because we're getting an awful lot of time to spend with ourselves. Um, and certainly I think we also need social interaction. We're, we're by nature social creatures, but that I think I've, I've heard this man, wise man that I know say, how you do one thing is how you do everything. Yeah. So how are we also showing up for ourselves? What is our, yeah. our self-talk and our self-love? And I have been wondering about this because I think Buddhism shows us a way toward liberation. Jesus shows us a way toward liberation, not just for the self, but for all. And the way toward liberation is always wrapped up in mm-hmm. essentially loving kindness and compassion, right? So not just toward the self, but toward the collective as well. And um, I'm wondering, though, in light of this talk, what role does grief play in liberation? Well, I think that to grieve well is to live well. Um, we we are losing things all the time. We lose our youth, we lose our hair, we lose friends, um, we lose pets. I think that one of the services that, that our pets uh, do for us is that they die before we do and they give us an opportunity to grieve. I think it's really important to acknowledge when something has passed away when it's gone and is is no longer. Um, uh, 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 um, I'm glad you brought this up because I think a huge misunderstanding of uh, Buddhism is this business about we suffer because we have attachments and that some people think, well, then if I don't have any attachments, I won't suffer. Uh, Attachments are inevitable in human life. We are attached to people, Mm -hmm. we are attached to places, we are attached to ideas and habits, Mm -hmm. customs, we're attached to all sorts of things. And what Buddhism teaches is that it is inevitable that those attachments go away. And we cause ourselves suffering because we do not acknowledge Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. that things change. Things arise and they fall away. I, as you know, stress the importance of having a daily spiritual practice. And uh, you never heard me say that. <laughs> I haven't, I've never heard you say that. Could you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not so sure I, I begin my daily spiritual practice and I have, uh, this is, I do more than one thing and I do, um, things more than once a day but in the morning uh, the first lines that I read are these today may be the day that I die Mm. may this awareness transform how I live Mm. you never know one of the books that I have read is called the wild edge of sorrow I love that book. Oh, good. You've read it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And one of his precepts is that we have sort of lost our ability to grieve 
well because we've lost this connection to both ritual mm-hmm. um, as well as the return, as well as the return to community, as well as our connection to the earth, this mm-hmm. deeper sense of knowing where we come from and what we are part of and where that sort of grounded home is. I think that's, per- I don't, I can't speak as eloquently to other societies, but for sure that's particular to American society, mm-hmm. this sort of disruption of our life with the earth. And one of the things that I learned from John Dominic Crossan, mm-hmm. uh, who is just such a smart man when it comes to the Jesus of history, Crossan is a, uh, anthropologist, archaeologist, mm-hmm. and um, he said that he has come to the belief, based on his work in both anthropology and archaeology, that humans are hardwired for religion, mm-hmm. just like we are hardwired for language. Yeah, now, it doesn't say that we're hardwired for English, just that we're hardwired for language. Mm-hmm. And he came to this conclusion through his archaeology work, noticing that the earliest form of human ritual was around death. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, honoring the dead, having some story about the dead, whether we might look back upon that now and say, how naive was that? But it was a story that gave meaning to the human community where People had lived and they had died and they were, the bodies were disposed of in a loving and caring way. Um, and that goes back to the beginning of, of humans. Mm-hmm. That's interesting that you say that you bring up that as part of our ritual too. You, you've mentioned Robert Bella before, mm-hmm. um, who I've also read and he, he talked, so there's like, there's death. And then there's also our, our, bear, our mammalian ritual around play right? Mm-hmm. What maybe those two sort of, maybe the appreciation for life and play and fun also emerged with the ability to grieve life and play and fun at the demise of someone. But he, you know, writes about how play has taught us so much also about mm-hmm. ritual. And humans, of course, have an extended childhood more than most mammals. So there's an extended play in human children that is, that is available. And it seems like, considering that, that we might then have developed a deeper appreciation for the life-death ritual, right, mm-hmm. with our extended capacity for play. So um, before we close out this, I'll tell you a story. Mm. I went to Plymouth. Where's Plymouth? Massachusetts. Plymouth, Massachusetts to attend a conference. And Robert Bella was the keynote speaker. Mm. And after he spoke, people were gathered around him. And I waited in line until I got up to him. And I said, I would really like to spend some time with you. And he said, okay, come to my room. Uh, gave me his hotel room and we'll go out to dinner together. Great. My Robert Bella story. That's wonderful. And did you I, enjoy spending time, time, time with him? It, yeah. I mean, you know, he was the guy who came up with the uh, 
notion of civil religion and the civil understanding of God and all that. And so we had a whole evening together to talk about that mm. sort of thing, mm. social construction of reality. And yeah. it, was, um, it was just luck of the draw that I got to do that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm reading a book called The uh, Spell of the Sensuous that is a bit on, in the phenomenal, phenomenological train of thinking that our experience must be embodied because we, we don't just see something with our eyeballs, right? We get a sensation and, a, and an experience of it in our bodies. And so it's, he's really writing in some ways about the re-enchantment of our bodies with our surroundings. Mm-hmm. And that's familiar with Bella too. Well, we've wandered all over the place today. <laughs> I know. But, we did uh, it again. <laughs> it is a way to think about what we're going to talk about Sunday, about reality is not what it yeah. used to be. So we would be talking about right effort, right. the mental discipline of right effort. Yeah. And uh, right effort means seeing what is, and it's an ongoing struggle. I told you that I'm going to read uh, a long editorial by Peter Marty on Sunday called Letting Go of White Defensiveness. And um, you've read it now because I sent it to yeah. you. And it just seems like mm-hmm. at every mm-hmm. turn, there's something more to know and to see. And that gives me hope, actually. We're peeling back the layers. That gives me hope. Yeah, actually, it does me too. I mean, this is sort of like the, 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 the hope and disruption. I think there is hopefulness and disruption because it forces us to peel back. Uh, uh, one of my heroes, a guy named Carl Almarty, whom we have to talk about sometime, uh, said um, it's a good habit to have is that the, at the bottom of every page of your life, right, more to come. <laughs> dot 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 good way to sign off yeah okay <laughs> all I'll right see you Sunday. okay thanks